The time is at hand. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order. But I am telling you right now. We need a great reset. And this, this is, is extremely, extremely dangerous, dangerous to our democracy. democracy. Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen. Welcome to In Dark Places. I'm your Huckleberry, Junebug Fugit. Did you hear about the World Economic Forum having their little shindig last week in Davos, Switzerland? Yup, they're at it again. Talking about their planned Disease X. And any other ways that they can destroy life as you know it. Interstellar Tourism Campaign Calls for Aliens to Visit Lexington, Kentucky by Tim Banal. Thanks, Tim. The city of Lexington, Kentucky, which is about three hours away from me, has launched a clever interstellar tourism campaign, beckoning aliens to visit the self-described horse capital of the galaxy. The quirky concept comes courtesy of the Economic Development Group, Visit Lex, which noted in a press release that recent UFO revelations and advances in deep space imaging have fueled the belief that we are not alone in the universe. With that in mind, they created what is said to be the first ever ad campaign aimed at our proverbial space brothers. We believe Lexington is the best place on Earth, said Visit Lex President Mary Quinn Raymer arguing that it's the ideal location for extraterrestrial travelers to begin exploring our world. In order to reach those prospective interstellar tourists, the enlisted Lexington native and SETI scientist Dr. Robert Botter and a team of experts who crafted a call to aliens that they beamed into space last month by way of a laser. We brought together experts in engineering, linguistics, digital media, philosophy, and science fiction to design, debate, and transmit this message. He marveled at the remarkable effort contained within the missive are photos of the picturesque city, an audio recording from legendary blues musician blues musician T. D. Young and a bitmap image similar to the famed Arcebo message of 1974. Linguistics expert Dr. Andrew Bird, who worked on the project, explained that the bitmap image is the key to it all, as it contains imagery representing the elements of life, our iconic Lexington rolling hills, and the molecular structure for water, bourbon, and even dopamine, because Lexington is fun. Approved by the FAA, the laser image was specifically sent to the star system TRAPPIST-1, which is approximately 39 light-years from Earth, 
and features several potentially habitable planets. The interstellar ad will reach its intended audience around 2063, and if there are any intelligent beings that are persuaded to visit Lexington, they could arrive at the city sometime around the turn of the next century, at the very earliest. This week on the show, we're checking out the ghosts of the Southwest. Saddle up, partners! Here's a story from the Southwest. This is the haunted St. James Hotel in Cimarron, New Mexico. The St. James Hotel is said to host countless spirits. The owners and guests of the hotel have reported various inexplicable events which lead them to believe that the hotel is indeed haunted and inhabited by the long dead who refuse to believe. Because of the hotel's haunted reputation, several psychics have visited the hotel in an attempt to contact the dead. The hotel's second floor is reputed to be the most haunted part of the building. Stories of cold spots as well as cigar smoke lingering even when no one is smoking is prevalent. One of the hotel's manager said that even if you cannot see the entities, you can feel that they are there. One of the hotel's former owners said that she walked into the hotel's dining room and saw a cowboy standing behind the mirror on the bar's front area. I got a personal story about that. It brought back a memory when I was a little kid. My mother was sleeping on the couch. You know, when you're a kid, you think your parents, they know everything in the world and they got it going on. So my mother was sleeping on the couch and I walked in the living room where she was laying and she jumped up, pointed and said, Jimmy, watch out. There's a cowboy around the corner. And I was like, ah! I was terrified. There was no cowboy around the corner. Well, maybe there was. But anyway, room 18 of the hotel is kept locked at all times because it is said to be the home of Thomas James Wright, an ill-tempered ghost who was rumored to be killed at his door just after a poker game in the hotel. He was shot from behind and bled to death. His angry ghost is said to dislike company. A former owner has reported seeing a ball of orange light floating in the room. The room is said to only contain a rocking chair, a coat rack, a bed frame without a mattress, and a bureau. Room 17 is where a lot of people have reported sightings of Mary Elizabeth, Henry's wife. She is said to remain in the hotel as its protector. Mary Elizabeth gave birth in the hotel and died there also. It is said that up to this day, people can still smell her rose-scented perfume. She can also sometimes be heard tapping when a window remains open. The St. James Hotel was built in 1872 by Henry Lambert. I know it's pronounced a, uh, pronounced a fancy French way, but I'm not doing it. Uh, the hotel was originally called Lambert's Inn and was a saloon with a restaurant. It originally has 43 rooms, and these rooms were witnesses to more than 26 Murders! It was murder, Sam! 
Some of the place's most notorious outlaws have left their indelible mark on the hotel, such as Jesse James, Black Jack Ketchum, Buffalo Bill Cody, and Clay Allison. Before Henry Lambert became the owner of the Lambert's Inn, he was once President Lincoln's personal chef. When the president was assassinated, he tried to search for gold. The saloon was built in a time when people have little respect for the law, and the Lambert Inn became notorious as a place of violence. It is said that more than 26 people died within the hotel's walls. The hotel was very popular with cowboys, miners, and traders. They shouldn't let miners in there. There's alcohol. Henry Lambert died in 1913 and his wife, Mary Elizabeth, in 1926. The hotel changed owners several times, but in 1985, it was restored to its former glory. And that's called the Haunted St. James Hotel in Cimarron, New Mexico. The Ghost of Armbruster Pack, Nevada. The Ghost of Armbruster Pack is a legendary figure said to haunt the area near Pindale, Nevada. The ghost is said to be the spirit of a man who was murdered along the pack in the early 1900s. The story goes that the man was a miner who was traveling along the pack when he was attacked by bandits. The man was killed and his body was left along the pike. Sometime later, a group of travelers were camping near the spot where the man was killed. They were awakened in the middle of the night by the sound of a man's screams. The travelers went to investigate, but they found nothing. The next night, the same thing happened. The travelers were awakened by the sound of screams, but they again found nothing. This happened several nights in a row, and the travelers became convinced that the ghost of the man was haunting the area. The ghost is said to appear as a man wearing a miner's hat and clothes. He is often seen walking along the pike or sitting by the campfire. Some people have reported hearing his screams or seeing his apparition in the trees. The ghost of Armbruster Pike is a popular legend in the area. And there are many different stories about him. Some people believe that he is the spirit of a real man who was murdered along the pike, while others believe that he is a figment of people's imagination. Whether or not the ghost of Armbruster Pike is real, he is a fascinating part of the local folklore. His story is a reminder of the dangers that early miners faced in the area and it is a reminder of the sacrifices that they made to build a new life in the West. The ghost is also said to be seen most often at night, and he is a harbinger of death. If you ever happen to be in the area near Pinedale, Nevada, be sure to keep an eye out for the ghost of Armbruster Pike. You never know when you might see him. Buckle up, buckaroos! going to tell you about the Hotel Del Coronado in California. Guests and employees have been experiencing supernatural occurrences almost since the day the hotel opened. Many people have attributed their encounters to Kate Morgan, 
one of the Dell's former guests who committed suicide on the beach in 1892. One guest reported her initials appeared to be drawn in a steamy bathroom mirror. While filming footage for Dead Famous, a long-running English television show, one skeptical staff member was overtaken with a powerful sense of Katie's final moments and became sickly. Too shaken to stand up or even remain in the room. Christine Donovan, director of heritage programs and author of Beautiful Stranger, The Ghost of Kate Morgan, and The Hotel Del Coronado, sums up the experience is by saying, if you have to spend eternity somewhere, what better place than the Dell? Uh, Disney World? Anyway, if you check into room 3327 at the Dell, you might share a room with Kate Morgan. In 1892, the young Miss Morgan checked into the hotel to meet her estranged husband. To her dismay, he never showed. Several days later, Kate's body was found on the hotel steps leading to the ocean. Since her tragic death, witnesses have been puzzled by odd noises, spirited breezes, strange faces, and the ghostly figure of a young lady dressed in a black lace dress. Could it be that she is still waiting for her husband in room 3327? Donovan has researched the phenomena of ghosts extensively, but not all of the Dell's paranormal activity can be attributed to Katie, nor are all the occurrences grand. Donovan claims, uh, It's um, the decidedly non-dramatic aspects of most of the stories that has made a believer out of me. For instance, a, a doctor emailed me that uh, during his stay, his shoes and socks which he always carefully placed by his bed at night, would end up all over the room by the time he woke up. In my mind, that's not enough of a story to have made up. In addition, it fits very well with other paranormal accounts. I've heard about objects being tossed about a room for no apparent reason. Donovan who has yet to encounter Kate or any other kind of paranormal activity at the Dell, says that suits her just fine. I was doing the man's voice. It was a woman. She had a rough voice. I always say there are two kinds of people in the world. Those that would like to see a ghost and those who wouldn't. I'm definitely in that second group. And I have a very low voice. That's the Hotel Del Coronado. The Hill Dogs of El Dorado Canyon. The Hill Dogs of El Dorado Canyon starts in the late 1800s. Many people set out to make their fortune among the mountains of the West. Miners took to Hillside and Canyon Deep looking for gold. With this profession came many dangers. Dogs were brought along, trained to be vicious toward animal and unknown persons alike. They were meant for protection against thieves. Because of the savagery of these hounds, some turned on their owners 
The dogs, too mean to be trained, were either shot or left to die in the wilderness rather than brought back to the miners' families. The dogs of El Dorado are said to still stalk the area protecting the mines of gold. People have reported growling and barking deep in the cavern. And some have said they spotted shadowy canine shapes. A few have even claimed to have been attacked by unknown black creatures. Two brothers who were curious of the legend decided to venture into the canyon to hunt the demon hounds. They came to an abandoned mine shaft. They found a weathered old chain embedded in the rock just past the entrance. At the end of the chain lay the skull of what appeared to be a large dog. The sun was sitting and the brothers decided to camp outside the mine's entrance. As the two ate dinner, they listened to what sounded like whimpering. Brushing the sounds off as coyote, the two continued to entertain themselves around the fire until the feel of the night shifted. The air felt thick and heavy as the tension began to settle into the brothers. After a few moments, growls began to seep from the shadows. Frozen with fear, the brothers sat at their fire until they heard the distinct sound of a rattling chain. Leaping to their feet, one brother shined a flashlight into the mine. The two stared in disbelief as they saw blood splattered on the rock walls. The chain fell to the ground from nowhere, and the brothers sprinted to their car as they heard a phantom dog coming their way. As the brothers sped out of the canyon, they heard barking from dogs following the car. The sound was clearly not one, but a pack. The locals say the boys were chased out by the hell dogs of El Dorado. The Yuma Territorial Prison in Arizona. Criminals who were apprehended in the early days of the Arizona Territory probably spent some time in Yuma Territorial Prison. The prison operated from 1876 to 1909, and just over 3,000 inmates passed through its iron gates. Though the prison was co-ed, only 29 of the inmates were women. Like any prison, life was tough, but for inmates at Yuma, the desert heat, stone walls, and massive watchtower created a hellish environment fit for hardened criminals. Outlaws from all over the West feared having to go to Yuma. From suicides, prison riots, and attempted escapes, Yuma has seen it all. While the prison is now Yuma Territorial Prison State Historic Park, the ghosts of the prisoners live on. Visitors often hear blood-curdling screams and pleas for help, rattling chains, and the occasional echoes of music from the Yuma Prison Band. It seems that many of the criminals at Yuma never found freedom, and their spirits were forever doomed to be locked up in the roughest prison of the Old West. Yuma Territorial Prison wasn't in operation for very long, being open for only 33 years, but it was loathed nonetheless. The prison was authorized by the legislature in 1875. It was built by prison laborers, many of which spent time there once it opened in 1876. You had to build your own prison. Seven prisoners, I would have like, built little secret like holes in the brick or something. Seven prisoners 
walked into Yuma Territorial on opening day. In 1882, the infamous watchtower was constructed, giving prison authorities a full view of the inmates. A year later, F.S. Ingalls took over as warden and made some major changes to the place. He bought a small building that housed an engine room, a blacksmith, a carpenter, a tailor, and a shoe stop. Shoe shop. He and his wife, Medora Ingalls, helped to upgrade the quality of life for the prisoners. F.S. Ingalls switched the prison over to electricity, building one of the first generators in the West in 1884. Medora brought educational opportunities to the prison and helped set up the library, which was the only library in town. Engels' tenure was followed by Thomas Gates, whose administration brought a policy of firm but fair punishment. A riot broke out in 1886 when seven inmates tried to escape. After seizing firearms from the guards, they took Warden Thomas Gates hostage and used him as a human shield as they charged the front gates. Gates, unfazed, told his guards to shoot and not worry if he gets hit. Holy mackerels! The guards began to shoot, and one inmate stabbed the warden in the back. A trustee then stole the warden's handgun and shot the attacker attacker dead. The riot was later named the Gates Riot, after the warden. At least four inmates were shot dead by guards, and one was wounded. By the early 1800s, the prison had become overcrowded, and work began on building a new prison. Florence Prison was completed in 1909, and authorities began moving prisoners upon its completion. I just like the story even without the ghost so far. Yuma Union High School occupied the building between 1910 and 1914, When the school played against Phoenix and won in a huge upset, they were taunted by the opposing team who called them criminals. The students took the name with pride and to this day use the criminal as their mascot. I'm going to go buy one of those t-shirts. How about you guys? Junebug, let's get some criminals t-shirts. After becoming a squat for vagrants and their families during the Great Depression, Yuma Territorial Prison stayed unused till the 1940s. During World War II, the prison guard tower was used for spotting. The prisoner, the prison also operated as a museum up till the 60s. In 1961, Yuma became the, became the third state park in Arizona and remains a popular attraction in the area to this day. Many of the prisoners at Yuma Territorial Prison never got their freedom, even in death. Ghosts and paranormal occurrences are common at Yuma. Both staff and guests have been haunted by the inmates who still occupy their jail cells. While ghosts appear all over the old prison, the main cell block and the dark room seem to have the most activity. Though the jail cells are known to be quite haunted as well, visitors report feeling a sense of dread and uneasiness upon entering the jail cells. Some even hear the faint voices of the inmates. Visitors and staff have heard blood-curdling screams and cries for mercy. They assume that it's the ghosts of those sent to punishment in the dark room. 
Rattling chains are also a familiar noise, probably from the ball and chain that was used to punish attempted escapees. Some have even heard the faint sound of music, memories left over from the Yuma prison band. The dark room is the most haunted part of the prison. It's open for visitors to enter. Most who do enter immediately get a sense of being watched, as if they're not alone in the room. Staff says that the ghost of a small girl inhabits the dark room. She pokes, prods, and pinches visitors with her cold fingers. She may be one of the children of the many homeless families who lived in Yuma during the Great Depression. A staff writer from the Arizona Highways magazine attempted to stay in the dark room for 48 hours to recreate the full prisoner experience. She was shackled to the ring bolt with a jug of water and a loaf of bread. She only made it 37 hours after insisting that she wasn't the only one in the room. Cell 14 was the cell where John Ryan was held. Ryan was incarcerated for crimes against nature, uh, meaning he um, did some sassy um, activities. Both the guards and prisoners hated him, and he ended up committing suicide in his cell. Visitors who walk by cell 14 report feeling cold spots, chills, and shivering. A few other ghosts are quite well known to the staff. The spirit of a female inmate sings in the visitor's area in the morning. A ghost named Johnny lives in the gift, stop, gift shop. Hey, Johnny! And he likes to rearrange the coins in the cash drawer, though he leaves the bills alone. And there you have it. The Yuma Territorial Prison in Arizona. Thank you. I've heard some really unfortunate mispronunciations of my last name over the years. It's Fugit. But I've heard some downright obscene names. <laughs> but apparently my dad had the same problem growing up. Because he had a teacher that used to call him Fugitive. Thomas Fugitive. <laughs> so I guess... By default, I am Junebug Fugitive, <laughs> and I guess a criminal is not that far-fetched. So, I'll take a criminal t-shirt. The Mystery of Silver Hills. In 1859, Joseph Higginbottom, an eccentric prospector, established Buckskin Joe. Word spread fast about the discovery of gold in his camp, and by 1861, it hosted 2,000 residents, with several saloons, gambling halls, and even a traveling minstrel show. Hmm. One bright and sunny day, the stagecoach brought a beautiful dance hall girl, who became the talk of the camp. Her real name is long lost, but the miners who showered her with admiration and gifts call her Silver Hills for the fancy heeled shoes she wore during her nightly dance performances. After a few performances, word got out that Silver Hills planned to move on. A desperate contingent of men approached her and begged her to stay, and to their relief, she agreed. But little did she know her happy dancing days were about to end. 
in the winter of 1861, an outbreak of smallpox hit the camp. The town leaders sent to Denver for nurses, but they never arrived. The town was overwhelmed with the sick and dying. Silver Hills could be found traveling from cabin to cabin, tending to the sick and caring for their families. She even helped bury the dead. By the spring of 1862, the worst of this disease was over. Those miners who remained wanted to show their gratitude to the merciful dancehall girl, but she seemed to have vanished. A group of miners searched the surrounding mountains. When it was established, she had not left Buckskin Joe by either horse or stage. As the months passed, the mystery of her disappearance deepened. The rumors began to fly. Had she contracted smallpox herself and died? Or maybe she had survived, but somehow found herself with a pox-scarred face, so she was too ashamed to be seen. As it turned out, these rumors were not far from the truth, for in the summer of 1862, a ghostly female began to appear in the camp's cemetery. She was seen wandering among the tombstones, wearing a heavy black veil. The figure always carried flowers, which she would place on several graves. Was she still comforting those whom she had lost? The old cemetery is the only part of the Buckskin Joe camp that still remains today. Silver Hill's ghost has been seen for well over a century and a half in the cemetery. When witnesses approach her, they report her figure seems to just blow away on the wind. After her disappearance, the miners named one of the surrounding mountains Silver Hills to honor her. The Oliver House in Bisbee, Arizona. Bisbee's history of mining, labor strikes, and race riots made it an interesting part of Arizona heritage, but it's also known to be quite spooky. Those traveling to Bisbee looking for a scare usually spend a night or two at the Oliver House, a haunted bed and breakfast overlooking the town. Most of the guests who stay at the Oliver House are very much alive, but there's about a dozen spirits who have long overstayed their welcome. The Oliver House has a deceptively wholesome appearance, and its location on a forested hill makes it a great spot for bird watching. But the building has a dark past. The building has seen 26 deaths, including a mass murder. It was murder, Sam. The most known was that of Nathaniel Nat Anderson, who was shot right between the eyes by a debtor. The ghost of Nat Anderson still haunts the Oliver House and lives in the aptly named Room 13. Just about every room in the Oliver House is haunted, and guests are sure to encounter a few spirits no matter what room they stay in. There's also the Grandma Room. That's terrifying! Home to the... Okay, it's home to a calm spirit of an elderly woman. The Blue Room, where a jealous cop went on a murdering spree... And the Purple Sage Room, where doors and windows open and close on their own. 
Guests of the Oliver House often report phantom footsteps, feelings of being watched, and the occasional echoes of a phantom party from rooms that are supposed to be empty. I want to go to a phantom party. Here's some history of the Oliver House. Edith Ann Oliver was married to Henry Oliver, a mining tycoon. They thought the executives of the Calumet in Arizona Mining Company needed a space to live and work, so they began building the Oliver House in 1908. Edith had the building made out of brick, as Bisbee had frequent fires and buildings were constantly being destroyed. Many of the city's historical records were destroyed in the fires. While it's known that 27 people died in the Oliver House, the number could be much higher, but since most of the records were burned, we'll never know. Over time, the building eventually housed miners as well as executives, and the Oliver House became more of a boarding house for the local workers. In 1986, the house was bought by Dennis Schranz. He turned the Oliver House into a full-on bed and breakfast. While Schranz was initially skeptical about the hauntiness of the Oliver House, it didn't take him long to start believing. At first glance, the Oliver House is a seemingly quiet and unassuming building. It's bright red surrounded by trees and sits atop a hill in Old Bisbee. But upon entering, you notice that it's eerily isolated. The only way in is via a scraggly concrete bridge through the bush. Then you enter through a creaky gate, and once inside the house, you get hit with the otherworldly aura of a ghostly presence. So I guess we're going to go a little deeper with this murder of Nat Anderson fella. In 1920, local miner Nat Anderson was staying at the Oliver House. He was also the lover in a fiery affair, sleeping with the wife of a man to whom he owed quite a bit of money. This guy was a jerk. Not only do I owe your husband money, I'm going to sleep with you too. Nat was undoubtedly found out, and the man charged into Nat's room and shot him right in the forehead, then again in the back as he fell to the ground. Nat was playing a dangerous game, and although it was fun while it lasted, it all came to a violent, bloody end. The man who shot Nat tried to cover his tracks. He caused a commotion while crossing the bridge into the house. He stole a watch and some cash from another resident of the Oliver House. His aim was to make look like uh, you know a thief was trying to escape. The ruse worked, even though there were multiple witnesses and it was well known that Nathaniel owed the man money. The murder remains unsolved to this day. Huh. Nat's ghost haunts the area around room 13 where he was shot. Guests who stay in room 13 often hear phantom footsteps in the room at night, cold spots, and the unusual feeling of being watched. The apparition of Nat has been seen as well. A DJ from a local radio station once took a $100 bet from a friend, uh, betting that he wouldn't be able to spend the night in room 13. Thinking it would be an easy $100, the skeptical DJ made a reservation at the Oliver House, and upon opening the door to room 13, he stood face to face with the ghost of Nathaniel Anderson. 
the DJ immediately returned the keys to the front desk and forfeited the $100. Oh, yeah, and then there's a little uh, mass murder. Murder at the Oliver House. Jealousy is a common theme at the Oliver House. In 1932, a mass murder occurred at the Blue Room in the house when a policeman discovered that his wife was having an affair. After hearing that his wife and her lover were getting freaky, he ran down to the Oliver House to see for himself. Upon finding the two lovers in the Blue Room laying in bed together, the policeman shot and killed them both. Then he went on to kill ten other people in the house before running to a nearby river and turning the gun on himself. Guests who stay in the blue room still feel the dark aura hanging over the room. They might hear phantom footsteps and disembodied voices. Some hear the sounds of gunfire and the echoes of someone crying for help. Staff also found that the furniture in the blue room is mysteriously shuffled around, even when they know that the room has been empty. And uh, we're going to hear a little bit about the Grandma Room now. The Grandma Room is named for the ghost of an elderly woman who often appears sitting in a rocking chair. When she appears, they say that the broken cuckoo clock in the room chimes at 2 a.m. Apparently, she died in the room and still resides there in the afterlife. The woman is said to be a calm, benevolent spirit and hardly causes trouble. There's one account of the woman becoming aggressive, when the Oliver House was bought out by new owners, they removed the rocking chair and cuckoo clock, which set Grandma off. Grandma snapped. The room was being redecorated for a small boy. When the boy went up to the room and to go check it out, he came back downstairs crying hysterically. He said a mean old lady knocked him upside his head. His parents thought it might have been his imagination, but the next day they found a large bruise on his forehead. And let's see. How about the second floor of the Oliver House? The second floor is the most active area of the house. Guests often report intense feelings of being watched upon arrival. Doors open and close without warning. Some have also seen lights turning on and off on their own. Guests often complain about hearing parties in the middle of the night, and when they go to investigate, they find nothing. They also hear the sounds of a handyman doing work on a leaky pipe, and again, when they investigate the sound, they find no source. Guests who stay in the plum room often feel unusual cold spots in the room, which they say border on freezing cold temperatures. They also feel a strange presence in the room as if there's someone else there with them. The shutters, the doors, the windows, and the purple sage room open and close on their own. There you have it. The Oliver House in Bisbee, Arizona. The Spook of Misery Hill Tom Bowers, who mined on Misery Hill near Pike City, California, never had a partner, and he never took kindly to the rough crowd about the place. One day he was missing. They traced his steps through the snow from his cabin to the brink of a great slope where he had been prospecting. But there they vanished, for a landslide had blotted them out. His body was exhumed far below and decently buried. Yet it was said that it was so often seen walking about the mouth of his old shaft that other men avoided the spot 
thriftless Jim Brandon, in a spasm of industry, began work on the abandoned mine, and for a while he made it pay, for he got money and squared accounts with his creditors. But after a time, it appeared that somebody else was working on the claim, for every morning he found that a sluice had been tampered with, and the water turned on. He searched for the trespasser in vain and told the boys that if they called that joking, it had grown tiresome. One night he loaded his rifle and from a convenient nook, he watched for the intruder. The tamaracks crooned in the wind. The yuba mumbled in the canyon. The sierras lay in a line of white against the stars. As he crept along to a point of better vantage, he came to a tree with something tacked on it, something that shone in the dark like a match. In his own light, he read, Notice, I, Tom Bowers, claim this ground for placer mining. Raising his hand to tear off the paper, he was amazed to feel a thrill pass through it, and his arm felt palsied at his side. But the notice was gone. Now came the sound of water flowing, and as he angrily caught his gun and turned toward the sluice, the letters shone again in phosphorescence on the tree. There was the sound of a pick in the gravel now, and crawling stealthily toward the sluice, he saw at work there Tom Bowers, dead, lank, his head and face covered with white hair, his eyes glowing from black sockets. Half unconsciously, Jim brought his rifle to his shoulder and fired. A yell followed the report, and then the dead man came running at him like the wind, with pick and shovel in either hand. Away went Brandon, and the specter <laughs> followed him up the hill in and out of the woods, over the ditches, through the scrub, on toward Pike City. The miners were celebrating a new find with liberal potations, and a dance in the saloon when, high above the crash of boots, the shouted jokes, the laughter, and the clink of glasses, came a sound of falling, a scream, then silence. They hurried into the road. There lay Brandon's rifle and a pick and shovel with TB cut in the handles. Jim returned no more, and the sluice is running every night on Misery Hill. And apparently, we're woefully out of time this week. Thanks, Jimmy Haunted. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Paul Chadwick. We hope you had a good time, and we'll see you again right here next week. God bless.